You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. On September 7th, 1909, the New York Times made a bold-faced, large print, front page, above-the-fold declaration. Peary discovers the North Pole after eight trials in 23 years. It was an incredible accomplishment, a feat that Westerners had been attempting for a century, and Robert Peary had been around for a quarter of it. Reaching the North Pole was like landing on the moon, but it had taken much longer, much more money, and many more lives than the Apollo missions. So yeah, the Times headline is a pretty big wowie moment. There was one thing that somewhat dampened the celebration, though. A week before, the New York Herald had made a bold-faced, large-print, front-page-above-the-fold declaration of its own. The North Pole is discovered by Dr. Frederick A. Cook. Robert Peary or Frederick Cook? They couldn't both be the first to reach the North Pole. But how to determine which one really deserved the honor? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. I set out to tell a short, simple, fun story this week. A story about the Arctic. But the Arctic doesn't grok with short, simple, and fun. So, make sure you've got some warm clothes and a lot of food. We might be stuck in the ice for a while. Today's episode, The Cold Hard Truth, Part 1. Eight trials in 23 years really undersells the trials and tribulations Robert Peary had endured in his quest to plant the last great flag of geographic discovery. His first foray into the Arctic had been in 1886, when he made an ill-equipped and underprepared stab at crossing Greenland by dog sled with the Danish explorer Christian Mygaard. Peary and Mygaard set out over the ice so fast and so far that they only realized they were running out of food when they were too far gone from camp to make it back. According to Peary's very spectacular telling, he realized they had only one hope of avoiding death. He threw all of their remaining supplies in the snow, set the dog team free to freeze, ripped up their bedding, and made a sail. They rode the wind back to base without any recourse. If the sail broke, or the wind died, or the ice opened up, they'd be dead. Unfortunately for Peary and Mygaard, the ice did open up a giant crevasse, right smack dab in the middle of their path. Lacking any practical alternative, Peary held tight to the axe he'd made into a rudder and drove straight into the hole. Somehow, if you believe Peary's war stories, they jumped the hole, landed safely on the other side, and continued their sail back to Etta, 
the Inuit village from which Peary would go on to make most of his voyages. It all seems a little too impressive for my skeptical eye, but who knows? Maybe it happened. One way or the other, Peary and Mygaard survived, but barely, and their journey to the top of Greenland was aborted. He came back in 1891, after a few years surveying possible routes for a Nicaragua canal for the U.S. Navy. His first journey had been financed by his mother, but this time he had the backing of the American Geographic Society and several academies and institutes. He was joined by a large crew, which included several key figures. His valet, Matthew Henson, an African-American cabin boy whom Peary had met in a clothing shop and hired on the spot. His wife, Josephine, who had taken over her father's linguistic position at the Smithsonian when she was 19. And Dr. Frederick A. Cook, a surgeon with a tragic backstory. Peary's second Greenland expedition was something of a watershed moment in Western Arctic exploration. Europeans and Americans had been obsessed with reaching the North Pole since William Edward Perry's attempts in 1827. Most of these explorers believed in one or another set of erroneous totems that marked the top of the world, like an open polar sea, or the Northwest Passage, or a giant iron mountain, or a hole that led into the hollow crust of the earth, where a hidden land of plenty dwelt, all of which we talked about back in the second part of the Fool Killer series. But up until Peary, the Europeans and Americans who made attempts at the Pole or the Northwest Passage or the Open Polar Sea represented an old-school kind of colonialism. Explorers like Sir John Franklin and Charles Francis Hall and George W. DeLong looked down their noses at the Inuits, who they called Eskimos, that lived pretty much precisely where they were attempting to go. They would bargain with them or employ them or enslave them, but they wouldn't take their advice. The English preferred their tinned food and peacoats to pemmican and animal furs. Not coincidentally, Peary figured, the expeditions of Franklin, Hall, and DeLong had all ended in tragedy. Peary wore fur, built igloos, and ate preserved animal fat. He studied the Inuit for survival strategies. While this was an improvement for white explorers, it was hardly an unvarnished positive for the Inuit themselves. He considered the people of Etta children, for whom he had little respect or patience beyond their usefulness to his plans. I should say here, I'm sure not for the last time, that it's very hard to give the indigenous side of all of these stories. At the time of the expeditions in question, the people of Etta had no written language, and even the most humane and curious of Westerners couldn't be bothered to so much as consistently get their guides' names right. But the verbal history of Etta says that the Inuits saw Robert Perry as almost... Well, I don't want to say a god, because that smacks of bullshit imperialism too, and yet it's not quite wrong. If we were to say they saw Peary as a god, we'd have to make sure we were talking about the right kind, a very Grecian or Old Testament god, giving and taking away in capricious temper. At first, Peary had tried to trade glass beads with them, figuring they could be fooled into believing them to be beautiful jewels. But the Inuits were unswayed. What did they need glass beads for? If Peary had, instead of bilking them, attempted to sell actual jewels and emeralds, they still would have said, so what? The whole world of Etta was ice. Ice, ice, and more ice. Beautiful, cold, inhospitable, barren. No one who lived there had ever seen a tree, or even much of a bush. To build, they relied on bones and the very lucky but rare finding of driftwood. 
Their only source of metal was a gigantic meteorite called Anagito, which Piri had carted off by a purpose-built railroad in 1897. When Piri showed up, his ship was more lumber than they knew could exist. That was what they wanted. Boards, metal tools, guns. And they were willing to do just about anything to get those. During his third expedition in 1897, Peary had essentially leveraged his supplies to purchase three children and three adults, who he brought back to New York and put in the custody of the Natural History Museum. The plan was that if they allowed the museum to study them and their culture, the guests would see the sights of New York City and return to Edda the next year with metal axes and rifles. Instead, all of the guests but two of the children quickly contracted tuberculosis, for which they had no immunity, and died. One of the surviving children was returned to Greenland. The other was adopted by the head curator and came to take his last name. He was called Minnick Wallace, and will return to his story later. Even aside from the obvious horrors that Peary and his fellow explorers visited upon the Inuit, like the stealing of children, the robbing of remains, the raping of women, there were subtler plagues. The timber and tools and ammo that Europeans brought to barter were so valuable and useful that the fabric of Edda began to bend around them. Meat and materials, dogs and sledges, all the critical things that the people of Edda had once divvied up for themselves and their families became like offerings to be piled at the fine-shoed feet of Robert Peary. The delicate balance of life above the brutal 78th parallel was totally thrown off, and without regular infusions from explorers, the balance swung, and, ironically, life with tools, lumber, and firewood managed to be harder than without. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Back in 1891, Robert Peary was developing what he called the Peary System. For simplicity's sake, we can put the Peary System down to three prongs. The first was the simple dictum to do as the Eskimo do, eat, dress, and dwell as the indigenous peoples did, and often with them as well. The second prong was to lay series of caches, food and supplies along the route so that the team could make for waypoints of shelter and not have to carry everything on their backs. The caches were to be set and maintained by the third prong of the Peary system. 
the team would be divided into groups that would, one by one, exhaust themselves. The first group would lay the supplies, clear the route, do all of the work they could, up until the point their energy and food were exhausted. Then, they would peel off back towards Etta, and the second group would step up to begin wearing themselves out. By the end of the route, only a small team, including Piri, naturally, would still be advancing. But they'd be as close to fresh as a few months in negative 30-degree weather would allow. The second Greenland expedition, in which his system was first tried, was a rousing success, even though it was detoured for six months after Peary's legs were broken by his ship's tiller. The team reached the top of Greenland in May of 1892, proving once and for all that it was an island, and that the pole still lay across some distance of perilous icy sea, which he intended to one day cross. Every moment Peary was not on the ice, he dreamt of returning. He was inexhaustible. Every dinner or meeting or evening at the theater was an opportunity to try to drum up more financial support for the next voyage. Any downtime, on ships, on carriages, at home with his wife, was spent thinking about logistics. Peary understood that to get to the pole would take a level of meticulous planning practically beyond the possible. Every morsel had to be thought of. How much space did the crates take up? How much weight? What could you do with them when they were empty? How would you label them for a group of sailors and Inuits, many of whom couldn't read? Everything had to be replaceable. Every element needed to fit anywhere it was needed. It took thousands upon thousands of calories every day to march north over the ice, so most of their food would have to be dense and rich. Hardtack, a thick, weighty dough that might charitably be described as a cracker. Pemmican, dried meat and berries emulsified in tallow and fat and pressed into thick bars. But it wasn't just the kind of food. The hardtack and pemmican had to be packaged so that correctly serving-sized chunks were easily broken off. And the containers they came out of had to be modules, easily pulled off the sledges and turned into storage or even shelter, if need be. By the time of his first run at the North Pole in 1897, Robert Peary had thought of everything. Then, the frostbite kicked in. Matthew Henson tried to warm Peary's feet, but it was no good. Eight of ten of his toes had to be amputated. Still, he remained at camp, convalescing, hoping that the frostbite would hold there, that gangrene would not set in, that he wouldn't lose his feet or his legs. The voyage stretched on and on. Two years into the adventure, Peary received word from Josephine that she had given birth to a girl, their second child together, which she named Francine. When he read the letter announcing Francine's birth, he had no way of knowing that his daughter had already been dead for seven months. Josephine, or Joe, as she preferred, couldn't take it anymore. She grabbed their first daughter, Marie, and chartered a ship to take them to Robert. During the journey, she learned that her husband had another new baby to celebrate, one that had lived. He'd been sleeping with one of the Inuk women named Alakasua. As luck would have it, Joe learned about her husband's adultery from Alakasua, who was on board the SS Windward with her, unaware that there was anything to be secret or upset about. Matthew Henson's wife, Ava, divorced him before he could return, because she couldn't stand to have him away so much. She didn't even know about the children he'd fathered in the North when she filed the papers. Joe, in contrast, stayed with Peary, despite everything. They were reunited on May 6, 1901. Peary had finally gotten word of baby Francine's death and had traveled south to meet Joe and Marie. They stayed together more than six months, 
during which time Peary also learned his mother had died. But when the SS Windward finally started south again in 1902, Robert Peary wasn't on it. He stayed behind, determined to reach the North Pole. He failed. The winter was especially hard, and dysentery spread through the camp, following Peary however far he went. He would have died from scurvy, if not for a rescue ship from New York, which found and nursed him back to health. He was back again in 1905, financed by a number of well-to-do supporters, including Teddy Roosevelt, all of whom hoped he would name some landmass or mountain or bay in their honor. Once Peary's team had to depart the SS Roosevelt and continue on by dog sled, they were quickly separated by storms. The ice opened up in front of them, a wide band of sea halting their progress. For a week they waited, as the nights got shorter and the warmth of spring threatened to trash the whole journey. Peary named the water blocking their way the River Styx. When a slippery ice bridge finally formed, the Arctic greeted them on the other side with buffeting snowstorms and negative 30-degree cold. They had to hunker down almost as soon as they'd gotten started again. The men were starving, the dogs were starving. Peary had six of them shot and fed to the remaining animals. They were farther north than anyone, European, American, Asian, or indigenous, had ever managed. 87 degrees, six minutes north. Less than 170 miles from the pole. Then, the ice began to open up ahead of them again. The game was up. On April 21st, 1906, Peary and his team began a terrible retreat. They burnt their sleds for warmth. They ate their dogs for meat. When he finally reached the decks of the SS Roosevelt, Peary moped and sulked and brooded for days. He'd blown it. How could he possibly get another chance to reach the pole? He was getting old, and his benefactors were impatient. The Roosevelt was stuck at Cape Sheridan by the surrounding ice. What was he supposed to do? Just think about his own failure for three months until they could finally put out to sea again? No. After a few weeks of mourning the loss and recovering his strength, he set out again. Not for the pole, but for an uncharted scrap of space 90 miles to the west. He would map it, discover it, and, most importantly, he would name the things he found for his sponsors, who he hoped to then be able to convince to throw in for the next and hopefully final voyage. Once his small remaining team and he had passed into Terra Incognita again, they stopped and built a stone carn to mark themselves as the first people to set foot there. Then they looked around for a landmark to go by. Off in the distance, some 50 miles was a mountain. That would be their goal. Reach it, climb it, summit it, and claim it. It took 22 days in total to reach the small peak. He named it Cape Colgate for one of his backers, James Colgate. They reached the northern corner of Axel Heiberg and named that for a backer too. Cape Thomas Hubbard. Then there was his other financier, George Crocker. George was the son of Charles Crocker, founder of the Central Pacific Railroad. When Charles died in 1888, his will marked $6 million for George under the condition that he gets sober and stay sober for five straight years. Fat chance. George was living the high life in San Francisco, drinking and cavorting to his little heart's content, and he wasn't going to let a little thing like his father's death or the promise of six million dollars interrupt that. George partied away for three more years before he hit rock bottom. Finally, he checked himself into a sanitarium 
and wrote his brothers, trustees of his inheritance, to say that he had begun his abstinence. Five years later, he was sober, married, and in possession of six million big ones. He went to work in New York City. He reinvested his father's money into his father's businesses and rode those twice-folded coattails to great success. He got into railroads and trusts and banks. Crocker didn't need to know much about investment. That's what happens when you start rich. All you have to do is not lose too much. As long as what you fund delivers some sort of return, you're good to go. Peary had convinced Crocker to fund his North Pole expedition, and now Peary had to deliver the return. From the top of Cape Colgate, Robert Peary said, He had spotted a great island, maybe the shape of an inverted sea. It was large, very large, and totally unexplored or seen until now. Peary named it Crockerland. Then he was ready to head home. George Peary had an expedition to plan for. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is something interfering with your happiness? I know, for me, the sameness of the days is getting me pretty itchy. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in a safe, private, convenient online environment. This isn't self-help, it's professional counseling that you can access at any time and within 24 hours of signing up. Message your counselor whenever you need to, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room, and more affordably than through traditional counseling. And if you ever want to change counselors, you can do so easily and at no charge for any reason. BetterHelp is available worldwide and has licensed professional counselors specializing in many areas which may not be accessible to you locally, including depression, family conflicts, anxiety, grief, and relationship issues. If you'd like to start living a happier life today, BetterHelp is the confidential, convenient, professional, affordable way to do it. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash the constant. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 
Frederick Cook's life is a bramble of classic narratives. Immigrant made good, hero driven to greatness by tragedy, greatness undercut by overweening pride. His parents were poor Germans who immigrated to New York State with nothing but the clothes on their backs. There, Frederick was born in Hortonville with few prospects, but he clawed his way through the local school system and made it to Columbia University, where he did his pre-med studies before being accepted into NYU Medical for his doctorate. While finishing up his MD, he married Libby Forbes. In 1890, everything was coming up Freddy. He had recently taken his medical exams and was sure he'd aced them. He just had to wait on the results to come back. At the same time, he was waiting on his first child. Libby was due to give birth any day now. When Fred finally did receive notice of his doctorate, though, there was no celebration. Both Libby and the baby had died in childbirth. Cook was devastated. He was 25, just out of medical school. He was meant to be starting a practice and a family. Instead, he lumbered around the library, looking for escape. He found it in the stories of Arctic explorers, Sir John Franklin, Charles Francis Hall, George W. DeLong, and especially, Robert Peary. In 1891, he heard that Peary was looking for a physician to join an expedition to chart the top of Greenland. Cook said of the news, it was as if a door to a prison cell had opened. He was pulled out of his dark morning by the bright promise of ice and snow. When the tiller broke Peary's leg, it was Cook who set the bones. They had the makings of fast friends. Peary was impressed by Cook's calm patience, and Cook was impressed, as nearly everyone was, by Peary's focus and dedication. Peary was, at root, a deeply selfish and self-centered man, verging on monomania. His speech was gruff and stilted, only ever saying exactly as much as was necessary to secure what he wanted. Yet, that singularity of purpose gave him a sort of magnetism, an impression of greatness that everyone around was pulled to. And if you could earn his affection, which could only be done by proving your usefulness, of course, it was like the Arctic sun itself was moved to shine upon you. Peary asked Cook to join him again on his next expedition, his first attempt at the pole. Cook was battle-hardened, good in a scrape, a fine and trustworthy physician. Most importantly, he was the right height and weight and didn't eat too much. Cook initially said yes. He'd become interested in ethnology during his first Greenland trip and was eager to return there and continue his work, learning the language and culture of the Inuits. That was fine, said Peary. But, of course, he understood that Cook couldn't publish anything. All of the work he did on the expedition would contractually belong to Peary. But Peary didn't even care about ethnology or language. Why couldn't Cook write a study on something if Peary had no interest in it? It would set a bad precedent, Peary told him. So Cook went his own way. He joined up with the official Belgian Antarctic expedition of 1897. He found the expedition's ship, the Belgica, in Rio de Janeiro, and set out with them towards the Bellinghausen Sea, where the Belgica became trapped in the ice. The Belgian expedition, led by Adrian de Gerlach de Gomery, would become the first ever to overwinter in the Antarctic, and their survival would come down largely to the efforts of Frederick Cook. When the Belgica was first icebound in late February, the Antarctic summer still had a few weeks left. 
They had little food or clothing of the like they would need to make it through winter, as Gerlachi still hung on to the prideful superiority of Western explorers with their navy jackets and tinned rations. But Cook had lived through Greenland with Peary. He knew they'd need fresh meat and skins to survive, and petitioned Gerlachi to help him form hunting parties for seal and penguin before both left behind in spring. Gerlachi consented, but only to shut the doctor up. He didn't want to eat the fresh meat, and he didn't want his men to either. So the meat was mostly stored, with only Cook and fellow explorer Roald Amundsen eating of it as winter descended. On May 17th, the sun went down over the Belgica, and it didn't come up again until the 23rd of July. Living off meager tins and woolen coats, the men shivered, starved, and maddened. One sailor climbed off the ship, said he was walking back to Belgium, and disappeared off onto the ice, never to return. Gerlachi and his captain were stricken with scurvy and had to give up command to the only healthy people around, Frederick Cook and Roald Amundsen. We've been by the rocks of scurvy before and somehow resisted their siren song. But uh, how long have we been at this story now? Ah, uh, hell, let's just do it. Let's, uh, if you're not up for things getting nasty, Maybe you want to fast forward, uh, say, two or three minutes. All right? Scurvy. Simply put, scurvy is the result of a lack of vitamin C, or ascorbic acid. All animals need vitamin C. It's critical to building collagen, regulating iron, maintaining muscle, and forming and metabolizing several neurotransmitters, most notably dopamine and serotonin. As you likely know, there's also some connection between vitamin C and immune health, but just how strong that connection is and how it might work is still a bit of a mystery. All animals need vitamin C, but most of them can make it themselves out of glucose. But not guinea pigs and not humans. We've got to get it another way. Or else. Faced with a total or near-total deficit of ascorbic acid for two or three months, scurvy begins. In the first stage, it causes muscle and joint aches, fatigue and indolence. The joint and muscle aches graduate into pain, hot and sharp, during stage two. It's then that breathing tends to become labored, the mind becomes disordered or paranoid, and the gums begin to swell, itch, bleed, and burn. The swelling can get so bad that the gums overcover the teeth, partially or even entirely, making chewing painful or impossible. In the third stage, the gums putrefy and bleed. Surgeons treating scurvy in the American Civil War write about having to cut ribbons of black flesh from the mouth to try to re-expose the teeth. The pain in the joints and muscles extends to the bones and becomes unbearable, and the skin itself begins to spontaneously burst into ulcerous hemorrhages that quickly rot. Finally, stage four. Large black spots develop over much of the skin, high fever, fainting, Parkinsonian tremors, edema, pooling in the extremities, and finally, death, usually caused by hemorrhaging in the brain, lungs, or heart. Yet, even at the brink of death from scurvy, a course of treatment will usually lead to recuperation. Meaning, if you just get some vitamin C, you'll be fine. But that fact took an incredible amount of time to settle in. 
All the way back in the Eberus papyrus, which dates from around 1500 BC, ancient Egypt had identified scurvy and an effective treatment for it, onions, which will get you a pretty decent amount of vitamin C in a pinch. On the other hand, Hippocrates also identified scurvy, but doesn't seem to have found the cure. He fails to name his treatment, but describes it as tedious and usually resulting in death, which probably means it wasn't eat a lemon. Most European doctors and thinkers listened to Hippocrates, assuming that scurvy was a problem of the humors, an excess of black bile, or melancholy. In the 1500s, John Eck concluded that scurvy was a disease of the spleen, the job of which must therefore be to purify out melancholy. During the Fifth Crusade in the 13th century, the Christian warriors set upon Jerusalem suffered from scurvy, but only during Lent, when their diets were restricted to include no meat except for eel. So, naturally, Europeans concluded from that that eating eel was the cause, since eels were supposedly born spontaneously from corruption and feasted upon the dead. The cure, then, was very simple. Stop eating eel. Scurvy became a real problem only once people began sailing long distances. 100 of Vasco da Gama's 160-man crew died of it during their journey around the Cape of Good Hope in 1497. When Magellan circumnavigated the globe in 1519, he left Spain with 250 men. Only 18 of them survived. At least half of the deaths were directly attributable to scurvy, and most of the others were only spared that rotting end by more punctuated causes. Storms, swords, and spears. In 1536, the French explorer Jacques Cartier set out to explore what is now Canada along the St. Lawrence River. He assumed that since they shared an approximate latitude, the climate there would be roughly the same as France's. Instead, his ship was locked in ice, and his men began to die of a mysterious illness that swelled their gums, discolored their bodies, and shrunk their faces. By the end of winter, only he and two of his mates were unaffected. They struck out looking for some sort of cure or relief and came upon a First Nations man whom they called Dom Agaya. Agaya told them to make a tea of the needles of the eastern white cedar, which Cartier did. Within six days, his whole crew had returned to health, and the ship was able to return home a few months later. The tea, you won't be surprised to hear, was rich in vitamin C. Over and over, sailors came frustratingly close to understanding what they were up against. Sometimes they'd recommend red meat, or sauerkraut, or vinegar, or cider, or seawater, but they also recommended citrus fruit, oranges, lemons, and limes. In 1746, the HMS Salisbury was stricken with scurvy when patrolling the Bay of Biscay. The ship's surgeon, Dr. James Lind, conducted an experiment, a very sophisticated one given the times. He took 12 patients and broke them up into six groups of two, each of whom would be given a different popular remedy. Two were given cider, two vitriol, two vinegar, two were told to drink half a pint of salt water a day, two were fed nutmeg, and the last two received two oranges and a lemon every day. Only they were cured. Unfortunately, this experiment hardly changed things either. In his treatise on scurvy, Lind concludes that the disease is contagious, but caused by a number of factors, including a lack of fresh fruit and vegetables, but also crowding, dampness, depression, and discomfort of quarters. He buried his experiment in a single paragraph, and later went on to attempt to boil a wart of lemon and orange, 
which disintegrated the vitamin C and seemed to disprove the cure he had just discovered. Instead, the most popular cure became fermented barley, called wort of malt. The Irish doctor David McBride theorized that there was a vital element, which he called fixed air, that dwelt in all living things. If a body was putrefying, as in scurvy patients, it meant that the fixed air was escaping and needed to be replaced. Since fermentation appeared to produce some sort of gas, he figured that fermented malt would serve as a suitable replacement for the magical life air. Fifty years later, Sir Gilbert Blaine rediscovered Lynn's experiment and proved scurvy could be prevented or cured with citrus. British sailors were given a daily ration of lemon juice mixed with rum, sugar, and water. Delicious. At the same time, Alessandro Malaspina of the Spanish Navy was able to prevent scurvy during a five-month voyage on which he ordered his men to eat and drink from fresh oranges and lemons. During the Napoleonic Wars, the French forces responded to scurvy outbreaks with a regimen of horse meat. Then, in the 1860s, Lachlan Rose created Rose's Lime Juice, a sugar-preserved, vitamin-C-rich concentrate that became so ubiquitous among English sailors that they became known as lime juicers. And eventually, the whole of the English population started getting called limeys. But then they stopped doing that. Because nobody, no matter how they were treating or preventing scurvy, understood what it actually was. And what they did understand was frequently contradictory. Citrus seemed to do well, so they figured citric acid was the key. But when the British Navy therefore moved to using the more acidic West Indian lime, it didn't work as well. And whenever they tried to heat, treat, or preserve citrus juice, it tended to stop working. Onions and potatoes did a good job preventing it, so maybe it wasn't about citrus or acid, but merely about vegetables. But then why did horse meat work for the French, and seal meat for the Inuits? And why didn't tinned or preserved meat seem to do anything? Keep in mind also that nobody had any idea what caused any kind of illness until the 1860s, when Pasteur's idea of germs began to take some small purchase. In 1898, while the crew of the Belgica were dying of scurvy, germ theory was becoming widely accepted, but that only got doctors further afield from understanding that particular ailment. It took until 1907 for science to start getting a hint about the real cause. Only in 1927 did Svent Georgi discover what we call vitamin C, and it took a further five years before Charles Glenn King proved once and for all that scurvy was for sure a deficit of it. Until then, the best guess was that scurvy was the result of a pathogen. Presumably, it was a kind of food poisoning that made its way into tinned supplies like botulism. Dr. Cook didn't know about that, but he did know that he'd seen seal meat successfully treat scurvy in the Arctic. And, hey, what do you know? We're getting back to the actual story again. By prescribing fresh seal and penguin meat for everyone on board, Frederick Cook saved the lives of the crew of the Belgica, including Baron Garlacci de Gomery, who eventually relented. Cook saved them all again in the summer, when the ice refused to release the ship. Cook proposed and implemented the digging of an ice canal, half a mile long, cut from dynamite, through which they were able to slowly move Belgica up and out into the open sea, and then finally home again to Antwerp, on November 5th, 1899. He also again saved the life of his soon-to-be nemesis, Robert Peary. It was Cook who manned the rescue ship in 1901 that found the weakened, scurvy Peary and nursed him back to health. You might imagine 
that, having twice retrieved him from suffering, Peary would have felt grateful to Cook. And he might have indeed, if Cook weren't trampling on his territory. But the doctor kept exploring things that he could have explored, stealing glory and accomplishments that by rights belonged to him. In 1906, photos came out showing Frederick Cook ascending the top of Mount McKinley, now Denali. Peary hadn't even gone near Denali before, but that wasn't the point. He could have been the first person to reach its summit, if not for Cook. Peary set out for his final North Pole expedition on July 6th of 1908. When he arrived at Cape Sheridan to winter, he was told that Cook had passed through on his way to the Pole in February and hadn't been heard from since. Rather than go to return the multiple favors paid him and search for his fallen rival, Peary scoffed, figuring that Cook was dead and that he basically deserved it for trying to take an accomplishment that belonged to him. But Cook wasn't dead. He'd left with a company of nine Inuits and a dog team of over a hundred. According to him, he and his two closest guides, Apella and Atukshuk, reached the North Pole in late April, but had been cut off by open water on their way back. They spent the summer and fall living off wild game on Devon Island. In all, it took 14 months for the party to return to Anatok, the northernmost settlement on Greenland, not far from Etta. There, Cook ran into Harry Whitney, an American who was in northern Greenland not to explore, but to hunt caribou and muskox. Whitney was amazed to see Cook, who most assumed was dead, and told him that Robert Peary had set out for the pole eight months ago. By that time, Peary and Matthew Henson had already recorded that they, along with four Inuit crew, had also reached the pole on April 6th and were on their way back to Greenland. Frederick Cook had a knot in his stomach. He knew that if he didn't get word of his discovery back to New York before Peary did, the famous and singularly obsessed explorer would attempt to steal his credit. Luckily for him, he had a head start. It would take at least a few months for Peary to get back. Unfortunately for Cook, he was weak, he needed time to recuperate, and, unlike Peary, he didn't have the SS Roosevelt to steam him directly back home. Harry Whitney said he had a ship, chartered, that should be there soon. Cook could come with him. But Cook didn't think that Whitney's boat was coming in time, given the conditions he'd been stuck with out in the ice. No, he'd have to travel by sled. But Whitney took all of his non-essential equipment to lighten the load, including most of the records of Cook's conquest. Then, Cook took off on the month-long sledge trip to Ipernvik, where he then had to wait until August for a ship to dock. On board the Hans Egged, bound for Copenhagen, Cook regaled the crew with the tale of his adventure to the North Pole. On September 1st, the ship made a detour to the Shetland Islands so that Cook could telegraph the New York Herald. Reached North Pole April 21st, 1908. And that is how, the next day, the world came to know that Cook had been the first person to reach the North Pole. But in the meantime, the hunter, Harry Whitney, with two trunks of Cook's records in tow, had waited for his ship to come in, literally. Neither his charter nor any other vessel pulled into a Nantuck the whole of April, or May, or June, or July. When finally a boat did show up in August, it was the SS Roosevelt, carrying a triumphant Robert Peary and crew. Triumphant, that is until he heard about Cook. Peary couldn't believe it. He wouldn't believe it. Cook had barely planned. He didn't have the supplies. He didn't have the manpower. He didn't have the system. There was no way he had made it to the pole. 
He called on Cook's guides, Appala and Itukshuk, and interrogated them about it. The two didn't know anything about orienteering. In fact, the means of measurement for Westerners and Inuit were curiously inverse. Explorers like Peary and Cook attempted to measure distance by miles and time by days. The Inuit did just the opposite. Distance was gauged in time, how long it took to cross it. Still, Peary seemed heartened by whatever it was he thought he'd learned from them. Then it was time to make speed back to New York to try to beat Cook's lying ass to the acclaim. He'd be happy to give Whitney a ride, as long as he didn't bring any of Cook's things with him. It wasn't a tough choice. Who knew when the next ship would come along? Soon, fall would be upon Greenland, and then the long polar winter. Harry Whitney abandoned all of Cook's notes, supplies, and instruments behind some rocks and climbed on board for America. Well, with one detour first. Peary was incensed at the thought that Cook could make his claim before him, so he ordered the Roosevelt to run full steam to the nearest telegraph station, 1,500 miles away. He reached Indian Harbor in Labrador on September 5th and sent off his message to the New York Times, just four days behind Frederick Cook's. For both men, the race to the pole had been brutal. Each of them had cheated death many times over, lived with bitter cold and stark scarcity. They'd known pain, disease, and especially hunger. And they had reached a similar conclusion, that the North was personified, that it possessed a will, an obsession of its own, to push out those it could push and kill the others it could not. Peary and Cook had fought their wars against the ice, the wind, and sea. And now the last war was afoot against one another. The battle lines were clear enough. Peary said he had reached the pole on April 6, 1909. Cook's claim was for nearly a full year earlier, April 21, 1908. That put him on the defense. Peary designed a coordinated attack on Cook's credibility, while Cook's goal was to spread his story as fast and as far as possible, to cement it in the record before Peary could corrode it. On September 21st, Cook landed in New York and was greeted by a large impromptu parade. He made public statements about his journey and accomplishment to crowds of reporters, students, and scientists throughout New England, and he showed off the one piece of documentary evidence he had at hand, the thin, bullet-pointed journal he had brought with him, which, in theory, described the trek to the pole and back. He was winning over the public and the media as quickly as he could, for Cook's was a small operation, mostly dependent on his own word and the vouches of a few friends. On the same day, the SS Roosevelt landed in Nova Scotia and Peary transferred to a train that would take him back home to Maine. On the way, he began marshalling his forces. It's critical to understand that in 1909, Peary wasn't just influential or respected. He was literally one of the most famous people in the world. In 1898, when Peary wanted to make his third polar expedition, he requested a five-year leave from his Navy duties to do so. The Navy balked. He couldn't just decide to shirk his service. In response, some of Peary's richest and most powerful allies formed the Peary Arctic Club, the ranks of which included Morris Jessup, the president of the American Museum of Natural History, Charles Daly, president of the American Geographical Society, Brigadier General Thomas Hamlin Hubbard, a Civil War hero, and millionaire industrialist, plenty more. 
the Peary Arctic Club took on the United States Navy and won. Peary was given his leave. Now, Peary's club had a new target in their sights, Frederick Cook. The grizzled General Hubbard met Peary on the train, along with Herbert Lawrence Bridgman, an explorer and newspaper man who Time magazine called the Ulysses of Journalists. As they roared towards Peary's Bar Harbor home, the three formulated the first prong of their attack. They drafted a challenge, issued publicly when they arrived, which called on Cook to submit his records to the National Geographical Society to analyze and confirm whether his claim was valid. Peary said he would not submit any of his own data until Cook had done so first. This forward press provided the first moment of weakness for Cook. A number of newspapers put out polls asking their readers who they believed to be the rightful king of the North. And in those early days, Cook beat Peary by a factor of 10 or more. But after Peary's statement, the press began asking when Cook would produce the real evidence, detailed logs, and most importantly, his sextant, the brass measuring device that would have determined he'd hit the pole. Cook assured a meeting of 40 reporters at the Waldorf Astoria that it was all on its way even as they spoke, with the help of an American hunter named Harry Whitney. A few days later, Whitney got a wire off to Cook. Peary would allow nothing belonging to you on board. See you soon. Explain all. All of Cook's instruments and documents were gone. When Whitney finally got to Cook, he said that he had hidden them in a secure location along the northwest coast of Greenland, that they could be retrieved. Whitney, for his part, tried several times to do so. Cook did not. Nothing of the expedition was ever found. The worm was turning. When Peary had messaged the New York Times from Labrador, he had assured the Grey Lady that they shouldn't concern themselves with the rival claim. Don't let Cook's story worry you, his message included. Have him nailed. As the weeks went by, that increasingly appeared true. It's not clear whether Peary understood that he had caused Whitney to jettison all of Cook's evidence when he offered him the ride, but it certainly wouldn't have been beyond the moral pale for him to do so. He might not have known, when he requested the records be turned over to National Geographic, that he had made that request impossible to comply with, but he certainly did know that he had the National Geographic Society in his pocket. They had supported Peary since nearly the beginning of his Arctic career. They'd even donated to the latest expedition. Stacked with sycophants and partisans, the National Geographic Society issued a statement certifying Peary's claim as legitimate, even though the commission making that determination had reportedly barely bothered to look at the evidence. Frederick Cook was falling apart. He canceled his lecture tour, the only thing that had been keeping him afloat due to depression. He submitted a report on his expedition to the University of Copenhagen, who responded that without the original first-hand records left by Harry Whitney, they had to classify Cook's claim as not proven. Opinion quickly began to shift in Peary's favor. In January of 1911, Peary and his boosters succeeded in getting a bill passed through the House and Senate honoring him for, quote, Arctic exploration resulting in reaching the North Pole. He'd wanted it to say discovering the North Pole, but several members of the House Subcommittee on Naval Affairs were skeptical. Still, in the official record, Peary had reached the North Pole, whereas Cook's claims were not proven. And you might be thinking, that's not fair. This is a hatchet job. And if so, 
yeah, <laughs> you're right. On the other hand, though, what we haven't talked about is that Cook was a, uh, what's the word? Oh, right. Fraud. Before the poll, Cook's greatest accomplishment had been reaching the summit of Mount McKinley, nay Denali, in 1906. But the Peary Arctic Club publicly questioned the truth of that. Cook had left all but one of his crew members at a lower part of the mountain, and all of them had been nursing suspicion since the beginning. Yet, the one man who did follow Cook up to the top, Ed Burrill, had always affirmed it was true. Plus, there was the photo Burrill took of Cook at the top, planting the American flag. In October, the Arctic Club produced a signed affidavit from Burrill, saying that they had never made it to the top, along with a map with an X on it, indicating the place that he and Cook had staged the summit photo. Cook supporters countered that the Arctic Club had bought off Burrill, but when other hikers and explorers made their way to the place Burrill had marked, they found what came to be known as Fake Peak, a ridge 19 miles southeast of Denali and 15,000 feet lower, at which the photo had been taken. Burrill's affidavit was published in the Boston Globe. A week later, Peary had made his next move. He released the interrogation of Apala and Etukshuk, who said that they had only gone a couple of days north of Greenland, not even a hundred miles onto the polar ice cap. To counter this, Harry Whitney, who was there at the interrogation, said that he wasn't sure that Apala and Etukshuk understood what they were saying or signing, that they might have been confused or cajoled by Peary. And maybe they were. Certainly, they were incapable of speaking directly to whether Cook had reached the pole or not. With his notes and sextant lost behind a rock somewhere, no one could. How could anyone ever solve, once and for all, whether Cook or Peary had been first to the pole? Well, actually, there was a way. In Frederick Cook's notes, he said he had passed right up the meridian, 95th west, to get to the pole and pretty much straight down 100 degrees west on his way back. That put him twice in prime position to locate Crockerland, the large island which Peary had sighted from the top of Cape Colgate. But he didn't. Not going north and not going south. He'd been just a few miles from what should have been the banks of Crockerland and reported nothing. On the other hand, Cook did claim to have discovered a different island far to the northeast of where Crocker Land was supposed to be. He named that island Bradley Land after a sponsor of his own. And he brought photos of it. So, easy peasy. To settle whether Cook had really made it to the pole or not, all someone would have to do would be to return to the Arctic Circle and confirm once and for all which island, Crocker Land, or Bradley Land, really existed. It called for a different kind of adventure than Cook's or Perry's, not in search of fame or discovery, but a search for truth. Naturally, it was a disaster. That's next time on The Cold Hard Truth, Part 2. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, Kevin McLeod, Lakey Inspired, and Jazz Duets. Find us at constantpodcast.com, where you can then discover our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages, which I implore you to like, follow, subscribe to, whatever they 
call their respective functions. Give us the old rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and help spread the word. If you'd like to support the making of The Constant financially, go to patreon.com slash theconstant and sign up to be a patron. You'll get access to our secret feed, home to audio from live shows, interviews, bonus stories, and extras. If you're listening to this, stay safe, take care of yourselves and each other. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Polar Explorers, the world's first and only commercially available North Pole dog sled charter. It's probably a better idea than it sounds like. This has been The Constant. Why is there a screw gun going? What is with all the fucking screw gun? With only Cook and fellow explorer Roald Amundsen. 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 It would be Amundsen. And there's the screw gun again, so who fucking cares? Oh, God. You're stripping the shit out of those screws. I just want you to know that. I can hear you. You're stripping the shit out of those screws. Whoever you are. Seriously, there's no screw left. You've stripped it to nothing.